You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Katzen is the creator of the Moosewood Cookbook. She also writes cookbooks for children, including Salad People, Pretend Soup, and Honest Pretzels. Her new book is The Vegetable Dishes I Can't Live Without. Michael Pollan is the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals. His new book is In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto. Anne Velisis is a historian and the author of Discovering the Unknown Landscape, A History of America's Wetlands. Her new book is Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Thank you for joining me, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Anne, I'd like to kind of talk with you because you get us back to the very first American meal with Martha Ballard and her cookbook or her diary. Yeah, it, I don't know if I'd call it the first American meal, but it may be one of the, the first American meals mentioned in a diary. Um, I start with this book. This, I start with this meal that I describe in my book, Kitchen Literacy. Um, the time is 1790. The place is a small town in Maine, and the cook is Martha Ballard. She's one of the few women who wrote a diary in the 18th century. And on August 15th that year, she served her family baked lamb, string beans, cucumbers, and probably some bread. And what I found most remarkable about this meal that she served to her family that day was that everyone sitting at the table knew exactly where all the ingredients came from. And um, they knew it, of course, because they had a hand in making and preparing so so many of the ingredients. The lamb came from a farm just down the road um, in exchange for some work that her son did. The string beans and cucumbers came from a little garden patch near a brook that where she grew many vegetables and that she watered in the summer when it got hot and droughty with a bucket. The bread came from a field, from flour that was raised in a field where her husband, um, where her husband and son worked and it was also milled by her husband. And so um, everybody sitting at the table really knew the stories of all their foods. Um, at the time, this was really typical of 70 or so different foods that Martha mentioned in her diary. The great majority came from local areas local food sheds. And this is backed up by cookbooks of the era, too. If you go back and look at an early cookbook, let's say American Cookery by Amelia Simmons, you'll find that early cookbooks recommended that home cooks know very specifically about their vegetables and meats. In the cases of meats, for example, it was recommended that a home cook know the age, sex, and even the background of animals that could become meat that were used in recipes. Of course, knowing the age of meat could decree how how it would be best cooked, whether it be stewed or um, prepared in a different way. So I found those things to be utterly remarkable because, of course, nowadays we're so used to um, we shop for foods not knowing the stories of our foods. Um, so I found that to be a fascinating, fascinating aspect of that er, those early meals. One of the things you describe is what you call the food shed, which is where you can see where you can get all your food from. Our food shed now is no longer uh, visible from our backyard. In fact, generally, it's the supermarket, isn't it, Michael? Or the whole world. Uh, you know, we're eating from the land of, of very distant countries these days because the uh, 
the food chain has gotten so long and, and has been globalized in the last few years, which is one of the reasons that uh, it becomes so hard to know the provenance of your food. Um, you just have no idea when you buy that, you know, organic Chilean asparagus. Um, okay, you know it came from Chile, but there's very little else you know about it. Was it a small farmer? Was it a big packer, you know, growing it? Um, so the longer the food chain gets, uh, the less we know about uh, the uh, the beginning of it. Molly, I, I wanted to ask you, as an author of cookbooks, when you're writing a cookbook, what do you think about the ingredients that you're putting into these recipes? How are the people going to get them, and what are they going to know about them? It's tricky because I test recipes in Berkeley, California, where um, the produce is, is pretty nice most of the year, but I have to anticipate people will be cooking these recipes, and I hope they will, all over the country, and I have to figure out what they can get reasonably at different times of year. And when I first started writing cookbooks several decades ago, I used to call up my mother in upstate New York um, when I was in the middle of a recipe to ask her what she could get and where she would find it because I wanted people all over the country to be able to make these dishes. I didn't want it to just be something that they would read for some vicarious experience. I really wanted the recipes to become their dinner. So it's tricky because there are different things available in different parts of the country at different times of year, or at least there used to be, and now just about everything's available in most places, most of the time, because of the um, free trade agreements enabling us to to buy things from the other from the southern hemisphere during the winter that would normally be in the summer, and it's very confusing. It's what what to include in the recipe. So I try to keep it simple, and to in in um, in my new vegetable book, book for example, I have um, as great an assortment of vegetables as I personally like, because <laughs> I left out a few that I don't like, but I wanted to have a great assortment so that it would cover all the seasons, so people wouldn't be tempted to buy out-of-season vegetables in the dead of winter. This is something that I realized when I was reading your your book, Michael, that I really actually have lost touch with the seasons. We, Because of the way food is distributed now and available now, we've lost touch with the seasons. It wasn't always this way. And Anne, your book kind of charts that course, how we moved from the the vegetables that would be growing during a certain time of year or a certain time of year when meat would be available. And one of the first people to actually change the way we saw this was uh, Augustus Swift. Gustavus Swift, yeah. Um, if you go back and look again at early diaries and early cookbooks, people made note of the first times they would eat vegetables in a year because it was so exciting to eat those first green peas or string beans. Um, and you can almost feel this palpable joy about it um, because if you imagine they hadn't eaten these things all through the year. But Gustavus Swift played a big role in changing how we think about meat, for example. Um, at the t in the 19th century, as cities were getting bigger and bigger and meats, uh, to supply meats, they came from farther and farther away by railroad, mostly from the Great Plains of America. And as meats were transported, first the whole animal was transported to the East Coast. And on route, they, the cattle just got battered and um, got very sick and often showed up, you know, sick or dead at market. And Gustavus Swift realized that he could solve some of these problems of distribution by assembling the cattle, collecting the cattle in Chicago, and mass butchering them all there, separating out valuable byproducts, and then shipping only the meat to market. And so um, in about the 1870s and 80s, this huge transformation happened where only the meat was sent to eastern markets. And at first, people were really very skeptical about that because they were used to eating meat that had been butchered. 
um, where it was, um, where the animal had been. So the animal was killed and butchered in the same place. They were used to eating meats that were either preserved or butchered on a seasonal basis. This really changed things. And at first, there was quite a lot of skepticism about it. But of course, as the practice became more common, people welcomed the ability to have cheap meat um, year-round. I think it's important that you, you suggest that meat was a seasonal food, too. And people ate certain meats at different times of the year. And we have no sense of the seasonality of meat. I mean, we have this idea of spring lamb, which is kind of mythical. But, um, but you, you know, you'd, you would slaughter beef when after the grass had been, you know, growing fast enough that they could fatten well on grass before you put them on feedlots and fed them corn. And chicken was something you you know you really had in the summer, um, and uh, so that's something. Um, and, and as we're moving, as there's a lot of interest in grass-fed beef, which is not a 12-month product in most places, it's not very good when the grass isn't growing well. Um, that idea of returning to a, some sense of seasonality to meat is is an interesting one. But you know, on the vegetable side, though, it's it's pretty recent that we that our supermarkets offered everything all the time. I mean, it's really post nineteen uh, fifties. It, it it doesn't really happen until the interstate highway system, which I think is completed in fifty six, somewhere in there. And that you know, the reason New Jersey was called the Garden State is because up until about that point, it fed New York City and. Uh, so we think this is ancient history, you know, when you when you fed yourself locally. But for many products, it's it's fairly recent in 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 the lifetimes of many of us still around. Well, I, I guess for me, it, what was interesting was in when I read your book, you talked about having to order the the one for your industrial organic meal. The one piece that wasn't somewhat local was the asparagus. And you said it's a, you mentioned in the book that asparagus is one of those things that we still think of as seasonal. And, and I realized that I didn't know what the season was <laughs> anymore. Really spring, yeah. right. it's, it's a, it, and, and it did. I mean, for me, you know, when it's fresh in the market, it does really mark the season. I mean, you can still mark the season if you have any taste buds left um, mm-hmm. because it really changes dramatically when these things come into the market locally. But yeah, asparagus is moving toward 12 months, just like the strawberry and the raspberry. Um, and... Uh, but, you know, th- those are inferior. I mean, there's just no question. They, they, they may look good, but they seldom have any flavor. Molly? The, I'm still jarred, so to speak, <laughs> from seeing strawberries at, at, in winter. It's, to me, it feels very recent. And I, I remember, it, it doesn't feel that long ago that it's, it, asparagus told us it was March. Mm. It was like, we, we can tell it's March because of what's in the stores, and it's asparagus. And the, I think the one remaining um, kind of seasonally specific fruit or vegetable now is the pomegranate. And I just, I get so excited when pomegranates come in in October because I know they're only going to be around until January. And it's not just the food, it's the whole ambiance, it's the whole feeling of elation. I loved what, what you were saying, Anne, about when the peas used to come in, people would get excited. I miss that. And I, I want people to have that feeling of the first, you know, the snow peas are the first things that we pick in, in the spring. And um, the asparagus indicates, you know, the end of winter. I, I love when the apples indicate the beginning of fall. I don't want us to lose that for more reasons than just the food. And, of course, you can find that if you just go to the farmer's market. It's right. still on the old calendar. <laughs> and uh, so this isn't, you know, this isn't uh, vanished from our experience. One of the things that I found, Michael, in my research and in my book is that 
actually some of these changes towards eating, though, far, uh, you know, vegetables from farther and farther away really did start earlier than I expected because they started when cities grew. And so if you go back to New York City in the 19th century, after the Civil War, um, people's vegetables started coming from the South from farther and farther. And people's experience of eating seasonally was starting to change at that point. Mm. And people didn't quite know how to handle it because I think they had these calendars in their mind. And then all of a sudden, when you started getting fruits from southern hemis- you know, from the southern states, people didn't know when they were supposed to be ripe or people or shippers would start picking them early because, of course, they would ripen on route, so they had to pick them hard. All these kinds of things that we're now familiar with. When, when they first started to happen, you know, people were sort of surprised and shocked. They expected fruit to be ripe. They didn't expect it to be um, hard. Of course, nowadays, we just sort of grumble and expect that supermarket apples aren't going to taste very good right. and or peaches or tomatoes, everything. We just have kind of come to accept this inferior. And, of course, there was freezing of food, too, going on, right. you know, for for, uh, for many decades. One thing that, that one big turning point was the uh, when we started getting canned goods and packaged foods because at that point uh, we could no longer see the actual things we were buying. And at that point, the stories of the food become more important because the story is just told by the label itself. And that's really tied with the beginning of modern advertising. Mm-hmm. That's something that I write, of course, about a lot in my book, Rick, which is I talk about how when people knew foods in traditional ways, they expected to know very specifically about places, particulars, how their foods were raised and where they came from. And if you go back to the very beginning of how when food was industrialized, early labels and packages um, told the same things or explained to people what they expected to know. But then, of course, as the food system industrialized, these very specific things about our food became unappetizing to know. And so labels and started to tell new stories that had to do more with people's emotions and sentiments. Um, and so it seems to me that what happened is Uh, With advertising and labels, our attentions got directed away from these traditional expectations of the places and particulars to more personal and emotional and fictive contexts of how foods could be understood. It's a very interesting transformation that happens. And and it's interesting the various personalities who played a part. You write about a guy, uh, Michael, Rusty Butts, Mm. who really was an a primary architect of the transformation of the way we eat. Well, Earl Butts, yeah, the uh, the agriculture secretary under Nixon, who had a lot to do with changing our food system. Uh, and it was an interesting historical moment where um, the price of food had gotten very high. Uh, there was there was hyperinflation in food prices because of a secret grain deal with Russia that had come to light and bid up all the prices of grain. And uh, women were in the street protesting the price of butter. And uh, farmers were slaughtering chickens because they couldn't afford the feed. And horse meat was showing up in butcher shops. This is all in the early 70s. And uh, Nixon realized that this was really perilous politically. And he brought in this brilliant agricultural economist who's still alive named Earl Rusty Butts. And he uh, set about making food cheap again. And the way he did it was um, uh, basically redesigning our whole system of agricultural policy which had been designed until then to kind of support farm prices, keep them at, some, at, a, at a stable floor uh, to keep farmers whole. Um, and he came up with the system of, of direct subsidies, essentially, which is what we have today, where you essentially cut the farmers a check, you let them sell their, their products, uh, and this just goes for grain, basically, at, at uh, whatever the price was 
that the market um, would bear. He, he closed down the granary. There was a national granary that the government had to kind of keep prices within a certain narrow range. Um, and he basically, you know, created a system that flooded the market with grain. And the just to take corn as an example, we went from four billion bushels when he was uh, when he came into office to twelve billion bushels uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, a lot of that has to do with his approach. He also pushed the farmers to grow fence row to fence row and take down um, and and really just concentrate on one or two crops and not have animals on the farms and not have pastures on the farms. And so the modern appearance of Iowa, which is, you know, black most of the year since they're only growing corn and soybeans and they don't start doing that till May, uh, is, is really the result of uh, a set of policies he came up with, which were brilliantly successful by one standard. I mean, the price of food, which is now becoming an issue again, but until now has not been a political issue for government. And governments love cheap food. I mean, ever since the French Revolution, you know, where the price of food was troublesome. Um, uh, it's very much in the interests of the people who, who run a country that food be as cheap as possible. And, and we have had that. But, of course, there have been a lot of negative uh, side effects. Uh, food is too cheap, and um, with the result that uh, we have a public health crisis around overeating and uh, diabetes and obesity. Um, so there's been, and there's been a real downside to this whole uh, phenomenon. But it's, but it's been mixed. I mean, you can, you can argue that food has gotten cheaper and more accessible. You can also argue that the food is crappier and, and you know, much less healthful. Molly, you were just starting writing cookbooks when this was all happening, weren't you? Things were very different then. I mean, what I described earlier about calling my mother in the winter to see what was available, it, things were much more seasonally determined then. I mean, and I've, so I've seen just in my, my own career of writing cookbooks, which is in its fourth decade now, that it, there, it, there were, you, you really had to just, you were limited to what was in season very much at the time in the 70s when I first started. And um, when I was running these, you know, uh, alternative culture restaurants and that day, it's like in the winter we served cabbage and potatoes and onions. And we, we struggled to make interesting desserts out of red delicious apples. That was about what we had. Um, and so the, I've, seen, I've seen it come up as, you know, during the course of my cookbook writing um, adventure here um, over the decades, I've seen more and more things become available from more and more places. And my dilemma is whether to use these ingredients or not, in, or, you know, if, if they're uh, exotic things that need to be imported, uh, or what to tell people in different parts of the country about what to do to, to restrict themselves to try to support local agriculture. And another thing that I get asked a lot, and I, I would not be surprised if you got asked the same thing, is what's the hierarchy of how do you prioritize um, with the different kinds of halos that food can have, organic or sustainably grown or locally grown, um, if you have to choose among these things, how do you prioritize your choices? Um, I tend to um, recommend that people buy as local as possible, first off. Um, I prefer to buy something local that might or might not be uh, labeled organic than something from another country somewhere in South America that has an organic label. The standards of which I'm, I don't know, I don't know if they have any meaning or not, but um, it's, it is confusing because now there's so many options, even the kinds of, um, you know, the foods that are, you know, oh, recommended, you know, the, the different qualities of food. It's still hard to know uh, if you can get organic food at Walmart what, what it means anymore. And I, I have to ask you, that meal that Martha Ballard described back then, was that the only meal they ate during the day? Because it seems nowadays... There, I have this kind of picture of 
what we're supposed to eat as being, you know, a healthy breakfast is bacon and eggs and orange juice and cereal and lunch is, you know, soup and a sandwich and a soda and dinner is meat and potatoes and vegetables and a salad and a dessert. And that's a lot of food. <laughs> Did we always eat that much food? I think we ate we ate a lot of food back at that time because people were doing a lot of physical labor. They were eating a lot of meat and a lot of bread. Um, but in this particular diary that you've asked me about, she tended to remark about the big meal of the day that she cooked. And that's the that's the meal I sense that she really took pride in creating and, and had some joy in creating. I think the other meals were more things like porridges or bread and milk, things like that, that were just common, common things that people were eating. Salt pork. But, but people didn't snack in those days. All meals were, mm. all food was cooked by a person who built the fire and made the food. And, and people sat down to eat whatever they were eating. It was more meal much, much more a, a communal activity and, and part of of the family life rather than just feeding, as it, it were. In every sense of the word, too, because it was not just sitting down at the meal. It was that each every person had a hand in raising all the food, and so so it was very much uh, an all encompassing aspect of people's lives. Well, well, Michael, we've we've really lost that now, and that's one of the things that your your books chronicle. We're we're way quite far away from that. And, and could you talk a little bit about some of the um, the way that the industrial food complex, the the what you call the food equivalent of the military industrial complex? Well, meals don't suit the food industry that well anymore. Um, they would prefer that we, you know, ate 24-7, and they're colonizing more and more parts of the day uh, because the more eating opportunities, and they don't even talk, their, their research is no longer term, in, in terms of meals. They talk about eating occasions, and we're up to four in their view. Um, there is a, a whole fourth eating occasion now, which is snacking or, you know, late in the day. Um, but it's very much in their interest that... Uh, we be eating as often as possible. And if you look at the advertising, it often depicts people eating places other than tables, uh, whether it's, you know, in front of TVs or cars. And the, the advantages of this for them is that first, meals are somewhat hierarchical. You know, there is a parent usually who's kind of calling the shots and deciding what will be served. But if you can market to individuals, children as well as adults, uh, customize their food, they will eat more of it. Um, and so there has been a deliberate effort to get past the gatekeeper, which is a parent deciding on a meal, and get directly to, st to kids. And, and uh, the microwave has been enormously helpful in doing this because now an eight-year-old can safely prepare a meal, an entree anyway, if it's not a meal. And um, so they have, you know, I, I don't know that they've set out to destroy the family dinner, but, but their, their basic approach um, has had that effect. And we now eat, according to one study, a fifth of our food in cars. Um, and the only part of the day that they haven't gotten to is is while we're asleep. And um, but with Ambien, you know, which causes people to wake up and raid the refrigerator, they may have succeeded there too. <laughs> Can I ask Michael? I'm just curious. Do you think that? Um Cooking then is, becomes a revolutionary act. It seems as though cooking would not be in the interest of, of big food. Cooking is not. Absolutely. They don't want us cooking. No, they don't want us cooking. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, I, I, I say that it is a revolutionary act, as is gardening. I mean, growing your own food and cooking your own food is, uh, is insurrectionary in, in, in this food economy. The reason they don't want you to cook is because what they have to sell is the preparation of the food. They're... 
it's very hard for them to make money selling cheap raw ingredients, selling heads of broccoli or, you know, uh, kernels of corn or all these commodities. You can't make money selling commodities because they're in, you can't differentiate them. Yours are no different than the competitors, and there's always someone doing it more cheaply. The price of commodities always is falling um, over, over time. I mean, they're obviously, there's spikes. So you make money by processing food as much as possible, adding value. And the, the value you add, essentially, is cooking. Uh, is is basically taking the raw materials and turning it into something that is done. Um, so you're adding the convenience uh, and, and the imperishability of, um, of processed foods. So um, they don't want to see us cooking because if you cook, you're using raw ingredients, and raw ingredients tends to be cheaper and, um, uh, you know, tends to be commodities. And, and a lot of this has to do with the way that our perception of food itself has been changed by, in part, this, the what would people who would like to call themselves scientists, but don't seem to be very good at it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there is also a, a very tight link between the whole kind of what I call the nutritional industrial complex, which is to say, uh, the nutrition experts, the food scientists, and industry, because you know, industry loves a new nutritional theory because it gives them another. Um, uh, some, some other way to rejigger the, the, the diet and come up with, you know, enhanced omega-3, diminished omega-6, you know, whatever it is. And they can do things that it appears the, the ordinary mortal cannot. Um, we don't have these magic ingredients on our, on our shelves, um, and, and they do. So processed food can at least create the impression of being healthier than real food uh, because they can... Um, they can add the whatever the, the the great you know the, the blessed nutrient of the moment is, and less of the evil nutrient. You know how do you you know they can do low cholesterol, they can do high omega threes. Um, so they love this whole um, chaos of of new nutritional advice that's that's constantly out there. Uh, a gentleman named Charles Fort, who was a early twentieth century writer, wrote a book called Book of the Damned. He was a critic of science, and one of the things he said that I think is really proved true in your book, is that science, like everything else, has its fashions. And nutrition science, so to speak, is one of the most fashionable of all sciences. And it's a very new science. Uh, we have not been you know, doing serious nutrition science for, what, 175 years. I mean, I mean, that's as long as we've been doing it. And I mean, I liken it to surgery around 1650. You know, it's really interesting to watch them figure it out. But you want to be on the sidelines for a few more centuries before you actually change your diet in response to what they're coming up with. Um, so it, it's it's remarkably crude the closer you look at it. Um, and, uh, you know, every 20 years we're learning about another set of critical nutrients that we didn't see before. And um, we have been, there has been this pendulum, you know, from this 30 years of obsessing about fats and this lipophobia to now a gradual um, recognition that, well, there are good fats and bad fats. And in fact, fats really aren't the problem. Uh, in fact, the, the fat that's the, the biggest problem is the one we invented to solve the fat problem. And uh, so as it, you know, it's gradually turning out that lard is probably better for you than what was margarine a few years ago. Uh, and now we're now we're moving to a carbophobia. Uh, that's the next evil, you know, nutrient. So it's you know it's all very interesting, and there's a lot of great discoveries being made all the time. But you, but I think journalists f- fail to see, and 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 the public too, that science is a very you know is an iter- iterative and imperfect 
uh, dialectical process, and they'll figure it out eventually, but they're nowhere near having figured it out. And, and as a source of authoritative guidance on how to eat, uh, my research has convinced me that science is not the place to look and that culture, actually, and tradition has a lot more to teach us than science does about how to eat well. Well, you know, I was just reading in the Chronicle last week, they had an article about these new label standards that are coming out called Anki. And, and I have to read this this quote to you because it's it just having read in defense of food, it just struck me as hilarious. Here's a guy who says, I've been counseling patients for 20 years, and I've seen the problems that they face with real-life nutrition decisions. You need a PhD in chemistry to find something healthy at the grocery store, said David Katz, director of Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center and developer of the rating system. Which is to say you need a David Katz to tell you how to eat, and you don't need a David Katz to tell you how to eat, and you don't need an Anki system. There's a box accompanying that article that tells you how they figured this out. And they oh, it's take, scary. They take the positive nutrients in a food, which they've identified according to the latest science, uh, and then they divide it by the number of calories, and then they subtract from that the negative nutrients <laughs> divided by score. the number of calories to come up with a score. And the idea that you know we need uh, a, a, a numerical grade on all the food in the store so we can essentially decide whether the Nilla wafers are better or worse for us than the Chunky Chips Ahoy... Um, suggests we're really quite lost. Um, but, you know, you can find... It, it's, it's actually not that hard to find healthy food in the supermarket. You know, a few, a few years ago, um, it was very fashionable and almost became a requirement for any cookbook or even recipe published in any magazine to have some kind of numerical nutritional breakdown at the end of the recipe. And almost everybody was doing it. And I sat that one out. I got tremendous amounts of criticism because I saw the irrationality of it early on when somebody um, uh, imposed that on one of my recipes. I sent a recipe to a magazine in my fashion that didn't have the numbers. They added the numbers through their research. And lo and behold, the salad recipe that I sent in had, and this was supposedly bad, a bad thing, 100% of its calories were from fat. Why? Because it was lettuce and cucumbers and radishes with an olive oil dressing. So they said, this salad is not good for your diet because it has a... Who and whoever thought about the idea of percentage of calories from fat? It was, And I thought this was insane. And then I also wondered, well, what are the... When I would see people pulling out their calculators at restaurants when they were about to order, trying to... Think I'd, restaurants didn't put it on their menus, but I think they, they would have... We were one they shade away. They to. might have. Um, and thinking, God, this is so not sexy. Two people with a candlelight dinner, and they're pulling out their calculators, <laughs> and they're trying to figure out, should I eat this? Should I not eat this? Um, I did get a lot of flack for not putting in the numbers. And, and my response would be, well, just eat more of the vegetables. Eat more of the – just eyeball it. Just go by your instincts. And, and no, it was it – was, you know, I – it took a few years for that thing to kind of calm down. Although it's, you still see it in newspaper recipes. The Chronicle still will give you all the nutrient information. What does it mean? What are people looking for? What is their ideal? And then what, what's the portion size? Because if the portion mm -hmm. is not measured, the numbers are even more meaningless. And, of course, all of this gets our attention so focused on the abstract that we forget where the food comes from. We forget these other things about context and culture, as you said, Michael, about tradition that are are important as well. If we're so focused on numbers and carbohydrates and calories. Which and are all nutrients. things industry can do well. They can't right. tell the story of the origin of the food without it becoming really, as you suggested, unappetizing. But they can do numbers. And so they have actually specialized in diverting our attention away from I, I, yeah, the context. I agree more. And, but uh, unfortunately, our, our attention is also diverted away from enjoyment and taste. Yes. Right. And we've forgotten how to taste. 
Well, this is this is a um, you know a, a premise of what in, in this book I call nutritionism, which is this ideology uh, that dictates how we eat. And like a lot of ideologies, it's very hard to see it because it's it's just the weather around us. And one of the assumptions of this, I mean, first that the nutrient is the most important unit in a food, but another is that the whole point of eating is to uh, enhance your bodily health. And actually, that's not the whole point of eating. Um, there have been many other very good reasons to eat, and pleasure is one of them, and tradition is another one of them, and community, and identity, and, and ritual, and and all this falls by the wayside as we as we obsess about nutrition. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>